Are you an overwhelmed SaaS founder ready to make the leap from leading a team to leading an organization? Join us each week as we refill your think tank with actionable tips and strategies from great business minds you know and those you don't know yet. This is SaaS Fuel with your host, five-time entrepreneur, SaaS founder, and globetrotting adventurer, Jeff Maines. Welcome back to the SaaS Fuel podcast, where we talk about everything under the sun except for the weather. Because, you know, that's just too predictable. I'm your host, Jeff Maines. I help B2B SaaS founders like you scale from seven figures to eight and nine figures ARR so that you create premium valuation, impact, and enjoy the freedom of running your business instead of your business running you. Well, we probably should talk about things under the sun. You know, it's mid-March and all here in the U.S. And that means that it is time for spring break. Great time for fun in the sun and certainly a precursor to summer. Now, some places it's a really big deal and others, you know, it's just a week of not doing much. Yeah, I remember my younger days when we returned from school after spring break, the teacher would ask, you know, what everybody did. And I was amazed at some of the stories. I didn't know you could go to Disneyland on spring break and we didn't do that. Uh, When I was a teen, a group of friends went skiing a few years in a row over spring break. and I'm kind of a terrible skier. Actually, I could say I'm, I'm an okay skier. I'm a terrible stopper, which is one of those things that's kind of required if you're going to be a good skier. Uh, you know, I could ski somewhat in control and get up and get some good speed. The problem was is that speed just kept increasing going downhill. So at first, you know, I would get going so fast I would fall and that wasn't a great experience. And so then instead of that, when I got going too fast, then I would just sit down and slow down or stop. I don't think that's how it's supposed to work. But it was certainly comical. And and I think mostly trial and error and uh, listening to my friends a little bit. I didn't go to ski school. I was way too cool for that. At least I pretended I was anyway. I really just didn't want to go by myself. I thought that would be kind of weird. But I probably would have been much better and enjoyed it more if I had. You know, if I'd actually asked for help and received some expert input and followed a structure of some sort instead of getting up a bunch of speed and falling down or sitting down. But uh, hey, at least I've never fallen off the chairlift. My business journey has been like that at times as well. You know, I didn't want to admit that I needed help, some expert guidance or someone else to bounce ideas off of. But once I got over myself and stopped pretending I was too cool My business life really changed in a big way, much better than ski. You know, that was uh, an aha moment for me and something that I've continued to do. I still have coaches to this day. Some I work with regularly, literally weekly, monthly. Uh, I have a few that I work with quarterly and some specialists that we just do one focused day a year and uh, continue to to do that. And sometimes it's the same. Sometimes it's a a different person that, uh, that we do that with. But, you know, focus days. Super, super helpful. But it's just a a constant cycle of improvement. You know, growth is one area where you never want to slow down and you certainly don't want to fall down. And uh, having those coaches there keeps you from falling and gives you some of that structure. So are you one of those that tries to figure it out and work it on yourself? Or do you like working with a pros and finding a shortcut to the the path that gets you where you want to go? Just curious. Drop me a note. Let me know. Which one are you? Entrepreneurs, I think a lot of us try and do it ourselves. 
Our sponsor today is Champion Leadership Group. Get free growth tools and map out a plan to scale your SaaS business from seven to eight to nine figures. Travel with fellow SaaS entrepreneurs on your growth journey using a proven methodology that is mentor-guided, results-focused, and peer-supported. Celebrate wins and quickly rebound from those nasty old setbacks. Learn to do the right thing at the right time to achieve profitable growth, impact, and freedom. Unleash that growth for you and your company at championleadership.com. Our expert guest last week was Sarah Noel Block. Sarah is an inbound marketing expert and host of the Tiny Marketing Show. Like many businesses, she was a marketing department of one, which is why it's tiny marketing, but it's never small in impact. So she shared her best ideas to turn a small marketing department, even one, even if it's just you, shared tips to turn that into a virtual army and giant magnet bringing those inbound leads. It's such a great episode. Really had a good time with Sarah. And our founder last week was Nathan Latka. A lot of you guys know Nathan, the founder at FounderPath, a company that has provided non-diluted capital to SaaS founders. And in fact, in the last 12 months, FounderPath has given 175 SaaS founders over $100 million in capital. That's pretty awesome. So I'll be hanging with Nathan later this week at SaaS Open, and I hope to see you there as well. It is this Thursday and Friday, and last time I looked, there were still, I don't know, six or eight tickets left. And if at all possible, you should go meet up with another thousand SaaS founders. It's going to be a great, great time. Our current guest this week is Steve Benson, CEO and founder of Badger Maps. It is the number one app on the App Store for outside salespeople to upgrade existing CRMs with mapping, routing, and scheduling. Very cool. Steve is also the founder of Badger Sales University and host of Outside Sales Talk, which is a podcast specifically for outside salespeople. He is a guy that does all things sales. So welcome a true sales badger who knows how to map his way to success. Steve Benson. Hey, Steve, welcome to SaaS hey, Fuel. Me. I'm excited to be here. Well, tell me a little bit about your journey and, and how you came up with the idea for Badger Maps. Well, um, I guess we, we've been around for about 11 years now, started in 2012, and it's almost 2023. So um, my last role was I was at Google working on some mobile stuff, some mapping stuff. So I was really familiar with a lot of the tools and, and platforms you would use to solve the problem that we ended up solving which was very helpful to have uh, from the beginning. The, the problem that we solve, uh, we help field salespeople organize their time in the field. We connect to their CRMs. So they can, we can bring all of their customer information into like a mapping and routing environment, help them make decisions on where they're going to focus. So imagine like med device sales reps deciding which doctors they're going to focus on and building a route for their day to see you know seven doctors on next Thursday. I guess the reason the the background on this is I had I had some background in field sales and I had background in in these platforms and so it was a, I understood the problem that the that the customer that we we were, and the prospect that we were going to be selling this to um, I understood what they what their issue was and and uh, then I also understood the, the tools to build the solution that kept us calibrated in the beginning on solving the right problem for the right people. Uh, started the company in 2012. You know, it took us probably five-ish years to get to a million bucks a year in revenue. Another another five to get to five million. So, what was it with that inflection point? What changed at that point that that 
caused the the spike? I, I mean, the product worked a lot better. I think you start giving, you know, when you really start creating enough value, it takes a while, you know, because we were bootstrapped, right? So we didn't have a big engineering team to to really apply to the problem. So it was slow to to solve enough enough of the problem and solve well, well enough that people really wanted to buy it when they looked at it. And right around 2017, you know, the product worked. It didn't fall over. It worked, did enough things. We really like we were putting the customers on the map. You could build a route. You can optimize it. And that's the core thing that we set out to do. We were doing uh, effectively after five years. Mapping is a relatively complex problem. It's not the easiest stuff to, to, to do. You know, I, I guess that was really the inflection point. You know, people start telling their friends and and you start getting a lot of a lot of people reaching out to you who are much more qualified. Deal sales cycles compress. They already know you're good because their buddy told them about you. And you know, so I think that it just it makes things a lot easier and faster. So you know, and, and I think that's probably true of a lot of software companies. You know, it takes a while to get the train out of the station, but then once once the train's chugging along, um, it gets a lot easier from there. I love that. And I love bootstrap companies as well. I think it's a really smart way to do that. How did you decide to, to bootstrap or, or fund the company uh, versus go out and do a big raise? Well, I, I think, uh, and this is a controversial statement, I would say most software companies are not a good fit for venture capital and a big raise. The, the reason I think that is because the way the economics of a venture capital fund work, they really need you to be a potential home run, meaning a 500 million to 5 billion uh, exit. And most SaaS businesses aren't solving a problem that one day is going to be worth a billion dollars. You know, it's, it's rare to be a unicorn, right? What you don't want to do is bring in an investor who has control of the company and investors, you know, they don't always take control of the company, meaning they can hire and fire the CEO uh, on the first round. But by the second round, they generally have control of the company. You don't want someone in with control of the company who's inherently... Uh, not aligned with you. If they need it to be a billion dollar exit to, to make sense for them, the the problem you're solving is is more niche and going to be you know worth a hundred million dollars. They're going to need to you know shift or p- you know pivot what you're doing or change what you're doing a bit. You know sometimes take some risks that you you wouldn't wouldn't have wanted to take or or do things that you they'll they'll risk the business going to zero to get that outsized return. That's not in the best interest of a lot of software companies because you know. If you are bootstrapped and haven't sold, you know most of the company to private investors, you, you're often you know creating a hundred million dollar company is 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 uh, a huge win. Whereas you know that's a pretty good that's day. a pretty good they, day. They might consider that to be a loss, right? Yeah. Because they just their economics, the number of so many of their investments go to zero that they need the ones that that do survive to to re- to return their funds and and help them get that two to you know five x return on their fund over 10 years. So it's not good to trick investors into thinking that you're going to be a, a unicorn if you're not going to be a unicorn. Because especially in the in the early stages of this business, I, I didn't think that it was going to be a, a billion dollar company. And so, I mean, so far I've been right. We make 5 million bucks a year, right? It's not a billion dollar company. And so, yeah. Still pretty good. Not a sharp, it's better than a, start, better than a sharp stick in the eye, but but it's 10 years in. So, the, you know, if we had brought in venture money, they would that wouldn't have been considered a win by their standards. And so, you know, Maybe they would right. have killed it. Maybe they would have you know, done, done things that I wouldn't have liked. With the, the direction that I went, instead of raising venture money, was I raised uh, debt capital. And there are a handful of businesses now um, who are lenders to the SaaS industry who are a really good, a really good fit. And you know, there's, 
banks make loans, but not not to unprofitable companies. So you have to be profitable to to get a, a bank right. loan. That's that's not because they're mean. That's just the way banks are regulated. Just their economics. Well, it's, it's laws. They're they're not allowed to take risks. But they're not allowed to take risks on on lending to unprofitable businesses. I think is the way the laws are are kind of structured. I think that was Sarbanes Oxley. I'm not totally clear yeah. on that. But anyway, banks aren't going to give you a loan unless you're profitable. So basically, with with the exception of if you have a ton of money sitting in capital in the bank, so like Silicon Valley Bank will give you a loan if you've taken on five million dollars in venture and it's all sitting in the bank. They can give you a loan with that kind of backing it up and and also a handshake from the vent from the venture capitalist being like hey you're not going to lose money on this but they wouldn't just give me a loan without a venture capitalist right and without five million bucks or, or so laying around right you know it gets the question why do you need a loan if you've already got five million bucks sitting around why would you take out a loan and, but anyway so banks don't work and there's a bunch of like um, lenders, just general small business lenders they're, they're not the best fit for this because they don't really understand the model and, and so someone who really understands what SaaS is and how it works and what the economics are and what the levers are, they're able to get more comfortable with the risk and make a make a loan for a, a cheaper price. Organizations like ScaleWorks, uh, I think they're called Element Finance now, uh, Lighter Capital and, and FounderPath, organizations like that are really set up to, to loan to SaaS businesses. My current loan is with uh, FounderPath. I've got about a $2.25 million loan with them at this point. But uh, the, those guys are kind of set up for the model and, and, and set up to loan this business. The first loan I took out was back in, I don't know, probably 2015, 2016 from Lighter Capital. And that was only like, you know, 125K or something. But the, the amount of debt they'll, they'll give you raises as, as, the, as your revenues raise because you're able to service more debt. And so that's, I, I definitely leveraged debt to be able to make investments. And the way to figure out if you're a good candidate for that, I think, is look at the investments you're going to make, you know. Hey, I'm going to hire one person in marketing, two people in sales, and two engineers with this. And you can kind of ask yourself, well, you know, if I if I hire these assets, uh, you know, over the next year, are they going to produce more? Rep- am I going to be making more money because I have these assets that I'm not be able to pay off this debt with that money, that extra money coming in? And uh, you know, different investments kind of pay off in different ways. I think engineering investments pay back at the highest rate but over a longer term investments in like lead generation or sales um kind of middle term and then marketing it can can be the fastest return time but lo- probably the lowest overall in in terms of like looking at it from a net present value perspective you probably get the le- the least out of marketing the most out of engineering uh but from a you know return investment over a given period of time you probably get the most bang for your buck out of marketing Versus an engineer. Imagine how long it takes you to monetize a feature that an engineer built versus, you know, spending an extra 10 grand a month right. on Google ads that experimented and you're spending in the right places. You're putting, you know, 10 grand on the top of the top of the funnel and 15 grand's coming out the bottom. So, you know, that, that kind of pays for right. itself right away. Right. Oh, that's good. And as you've continued to, to build out your team, you know, how have you looked at that in, you know, 70 people now? Uh, how did you build out your leadership team? And, and at what point do you think that that makes the most sense? Well, it, it kind of depends what kind of resources you have access to, right? If you have raised venture, you can bring in leaders early on, right? And if you've got five million bucks in the bank and you know, if you follow the path like, hey, I'm making a million bucks a year, just raised an A round for $7 million. You, you hire your VP of marketing and your VP of sales, your VP of product and your VP of eng right then. But if you're bootstrapped, 
we probably follow more of like a grow your own strategy and um, at a million bucks a year, you don't have all those things because, you know, at a million bucks, you can only afford people to do the actual work. You can't afford people to manage the actual work, uh, or manage the people that are doing the actual work. So you'd rather have three people in your right. marketing team, and you know, at two million bucks a year, you'd rather have three people in your marketing team than one person managing who's like a VP level that costs the same as the three people that do the actual work managing no one. So if the choice is between having someone who's doing the work or having someone who manages uh, people that do the work, you'd, you'd want them to, to, to do the work. Sometimes you can grow those people into leadership positions later on as this team scales. I think it's important to think about, you know, the structure of the team early on is, is you know, often a, a business co-founder and a technical co-founder. And, and those two people kind of organize the different sides of the organization. And, and they wear the, the leadership hats. On the technical side, they're you know, the VP of product, the VP of Eng, VP of quality assurance. And then on the business side, they're playing the role of uh, often CEO, but and also VP of sales, VP of marketing, COO, CFO, um, heading, running CSAs. On the business side, I think it's important as you think about uh, leadership, you know, I think you, you don't want to bring it in too soon and you don't want to bring it in too late. You, you kind of need a few people doing the job. Uh, and this is especially true of any customer facing role. You, you need a few of the people that, that do the actual work and are, are, are interacting with customers who are reporting to someone who has a lot of power in the company early on, because that helps you keep the company calibrated. If, if someone who really has a seat at the table, you know, one of the co-founders needs to be very close to customers to keep the business calibrated, meaning solving the right problems for the right people, features added in the right order, you know, stuff that a, a VP of product would, would be in charge of kind of figuring out later. But, you know, if you don't have one yet, then uh, make it or, or being been very close. If you do have one and that is an area that you invested in early, then, then making sure that, that the person is really in, in touch and in speaking. If people that are either the CSAs, you know, customer success associates, if the people that are speaking with your, your your actual customers, if they don't have direct conversations with someone who has control, kind of guiding the direction of steering the ship of the company, you can end up sailing, you know, five degrees off the way your course actually should be, which, you know, over time ends up being a very big difference. If you keep sailing in slightly the wrong direction over time, you end up right. off, especially if you're you know, using outside funding and you're going real fast in that direction, you can, you can end up way off course. Tactically, what this means is, you, you've got to, before you hire a VP of customer success or a VP of sales, you want a couple of people up and running successfully in that role reporting to someone who, who's at the top of the company. Yeah. So you're not so disconnected. You don't exactly. have those layers. You want to put those layers in place, you know, after you've got them up running successful. Your first hire in sales isn't a VP of sales. The founder is the first salesperson or one of the founders. And then, um, and if you don't have someone who can, who can really sell on the founding team, you probably got to bring someone in. Or at least, and as a co-founder, or at least really listen to them. A lot of our startups die because they don't listen to the person who's really talking to the customers. Yeah, so, that happens a lot. That's, uh, so yeah, you want to get a couple people up and running successfully, and then bring in that that layer to to manage them and scale. What and the timing around that is once you're ready to scale that team. So I'm not going to have three sales reps or two sales reps anymore. I'm going to hire the next five. Before you hire the next five, you bring in leadership on that team, and they help you scale it. Well, as you've built out your team, one of the roles that you've continued to function in is a, a CFO, uh, especially thinking about the, the funding of the, the company. As you've used debt 
you know, what are the, the gotchas or what are things that you wish you'd known um, that you know now? Um, yeah, I know that th- this is important, right? So I guess uh, there, there are some gotchas with debt. And there's not a ton for a CFO to do at a company like this because we don't have outside investors. So I don't have to do a ton of like reporting or spend. A, there's not a lot of CFO work to do sure. if you're not raising and you don't have outside investors to kind of give care and feeding to. That's a benefit in itself. <laughs> that is just the yeah, simplicity, I mean, right? Yeah, I mean, you, you you have to have the skills to manage your cash flow and 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 you know project out. Hey, what are the next you know three years look like in terms of what we're spending and what we're going to earn. So you can balance who you're hiring and decide where to make investments and stuff. Um, and a CFO is, is is really very helpful for that. But de- it's definitely an area that you don't you don't need a CFO as a as a as a new startup. There's just not that much that's complicated going on on the financial side. Um, and debt's pretty straightforward. You know, there are some gotchas with it that that you do have to watch out for. There can be kind of onerous terms in the contract, right? And if you're going with one of the really high quality debt providers or focused on SaaS, this isn't going to be a problem. But there's a lot of like quickie lenders out there that are kind of scuzzy and expensive. A, a lot of lenders, I guess one gotcha is a lot of lenders don't put things in terms of that you can understand in terms of like figuring out well, what does this actually cost? Like they they talk a lot about like factor rates or they, they've got a lot of ways of giving loans that doesn't sound like a mortgage. <laughs> and and what, what do I mean by that? So they, <laughs> you know, they, they give you the terms of what you're going to pay back, like, you know, revenue-based loans. If someone's giving you, you money and you're paying them for a period of time afterwards, then it's a loan and you can convert it to an annual percentage rate, just like, you know, a home loan for a mortgage, right? And it can be tricky to do, especially if it's like sure. a, a, the amount you're paying back, like in a revenue-based loan, it's always changing that's difficult to do. It's difficult to figure out what is the ROI. That, that's one trick. You're thinking about things in terms of their ROI. That's your APR. Your, your annual percentage rate is their return on their, on their invested capital. So you got to figure out what, what is their ROI and convert to something you can understand, which is like a percentage rate, an APR, an annual percentage rate that you're paying. So that's one gotcha is just, you know, making sure that you're not getting ripped off and, and being able to compare apples to apples. You have to like, be able to figure out what's the annual percentage rate on this on this loan, and you can do that in Excel. And it's tricky with revenue-based loans because you have to be able to predict your what your revenue is going to be because they're going to take a percentage of the revenue to pay back their loan. Those end up being real expensive if you grow faster than expected, but real cheap if you end up growing slower than expected. So that there's you know that which can be a good thing. So I'm not saying all revenue-based loans are a bad idea or anything because you know. If, they can end up really working in your favor. If, if I had taken a revenue-based loan, you know, we, we sell the field salespeople, right? So COVID was real bad for us because all right. of a sudden people weren't in the field. We lost 40% of our customers in, 20, in 2020 in, in not a very long period of time. And then it took us a while to get them all back, right? So if I had taken a revenue-based loan in January of 2020, that would have ended up being a real cheap loan for me because they would have looked at my current revenues and been like, okay, so we're going to give you this loan. You're going to pay us this percentage of your revenues every month in a, in, until it's paid back. That would have ended up being a real cheap loan because our revenues then promptly dropped. But you know, if I had taken a revenue-based loan in January of 2022, it would have ended up being really expensive because we've grown really well this year. So the timing there is tricky. But the, you know, the, the easiest, most simple loans are just like, hey, we're going to give you this much money. And you were going to give us this constant money paid back over this amount of, t- of time. So over 36 months or over 48 months, you're going to make a $70,000 
payment every month and we're going to give you $1.5 million at the beginning of this. And, and you can figure out what the annual percentage rate is on that. Um, you asked about gotchas. So I guess uh, one of the important gotchas is can you get out of the loan? Some loans will, will make it expensive or there'll be penalties if you when you leave. Those are almost always negotiable out. So like meaning like you should be able to re- refinance your debt, right? Yeah. So what does that look like? It's like a term in there that says, hey, if you refinance the debt or if you, 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 you have to pay all the interest that we would have made if had you stayed the entire time. That's a real bad term. If you want to pay back the debt early, you have to pay a penalty of $50,000. That's a real bad term. And those are almost always negotiable out. And uh, you got to read contracts real carefully. Any, anyone that deals professionally in money, you have to be real careful with, right? Because they, they, they've got lots of little terms to, to screw you. So they, they professionally... Uh, Certainly written they, in their favor. They, they wrote the contract, right? And, and so it's, you have to be very careful... Right crawling in bed with anyone who professionally deals with money. So you got to read the car- the contracts real carefully. Um, but most of the, the the terms that really screw you are negotiable and, and you just got to make sure you catch them. Um, but the, that's, that's one of the key ones to watch for is, is there a penalty to leave? Cause you should be able to, if someone else offers you a better deal on debt, you, they, you refinance the loan, which just like if you're refinancing your house, same concept, right? Like, so you owe, $500,000 more. So someone pays off the $500,000 and gives, now you owe them a $500,000 uh, loan. But if there was a penalty on the first one of $200,000, then you might not want to do that because that's, you know, that's real expensive. Right. Right. Up front. So yeah, I, I once actually had a, a loan like that with a, with a, a nasty little penalty term in it. And what I did to, to sneak it, to wiggle out of that situation was I, I renegotiated a bigger loan I, re- I was I got a new loan from them that was bigger, and so I basically refinanced the smaller loan with them. In the process of that refinance, negotiated out that one term that I had missed the first time. There was like a penalty clause, and so my then I had a bigger loan with them with no penalty clause, and then I refinanced them away with another with another company that was that was a better deal. That's a really smart way to do that. Yeah, paying attention to the terms is, is so important. So I mean, those were, were some things that were really not available even you know ten years ago when you started. What other changes have you seen in the the SaaS space um, over the last ten years? How is it different now than it was when you started? Well, yeah, you know, financing is definitely different. I think the venture industry has changed. Cloud cloud computing has changed. I think a lot of things have gotten a lot easier. I think there's software, a lot of software supporting software companies now because it's a uh, you know, there, there, I think there is some level of bias in the investment community towards solving problems and, and just the software community towards solving their own problems because they know how to scratch their own itch, right? And so yeah. I think it's easier to, easier to get funded if you're scratching the itch that software companies have because the investors understand it. They're like, oh, yeah, I have portfolio companies that have this very problem in a way that it's harder to get funded if you're solving a problem for pharmaceutical companies because the, you know, venture capitalists might not work with pharma, they don't have experience as much experience in pharma. Yeah. Like, and they don't get it. So what's the problem when you're putting the stuff in pills? I don't get it. Like, whereas if you're like, yeah, so I'm having this, this is, this helps me with SEO like this, this, and this. And you're like, Oh, I understand that problem because all my company, I've invested in lots of companies with that problem. So it, I, I think there are, there's a lot of software today that helps you with, with all the problems of, of that software companies have. I think software has gotten a lot better. Um, it's just less buggy. I mean, we've had 10 years to work on it, right? So a lot of problems have gotten solved. Like CRMs used to really suck. 
now they're really pretty solid, right? You know, if you were using a CRM in, in 2008, it was probably a pretty par- painful experience. And I, I remember being on Siebel when I was at IBM in 2006. And now that was pretty painful, right? Uh, and then, you know, now there's a bunch of cloud CRMs. And that was one of the best out there too think, at the time. I mean, they yeah, were like the flagship. The gold standard, right? <laughs> They're, yeah. the I, they're, they're the one I and it was bad. To, to, to use. So they, they figured they had the yeah. pick of, their pick of the litter. And, and Salesforce was a small startup at that time. So they, they yeah. I, I think just software in general has come a really long way. So that, that changes a lot. The, the cloud and the tools that are available to us, the phones have gotten so much stronger. When I started Badger, we're a mapping, a mapping application that runs on the phone, right? The, the phones weren't fast enough to run the first version of Badger. So the iPhone in 2012 couldn't run our software. We needed to do it on an iPad. And obviously today the phones are, I don't know, a million times better. <laughs> I'm not sure how much more powerful they are, but sure. they're a lot, they're <laughs> a lot more powerful. It's staggering, you know, Moore's law, et cetera. But um, right. you know, these devices are incredibly powerful now and can very easily run our software. The platforms are better. The software is better. The tools are better. I think the world understands. No one knew what the word SaaS meant then if they were like, you know, an investor in Iowa. But that today everyone understands this stuff and it's a really important part of our economy and the whole industry has really matured. What's been some of the biggest surprises you've had in, in building Badger Maps? I think it's always surprising how hard everything is. <laughs> starting starting any business, but certainly a technology <laughs> business, I think. You know, there's there's a lot of challenges that come up. It's always surprising how bad certain things work. You try to send a check on the banking website, and you're like, "Wow, this doesn't work that well." It's like really, like, <laughs> just uh, <laughs> there are a lot of problems. I think and challenges that uh, around starting a company. It's hard, hard to hire great people. It's always surprising. I, I, I guess I, I'm always surprised at how many random applications there are to, to technology too. Like three of our biggest customers aren't even field sales teams and which is surprising right they're they're more like field service teams that are gathering data and need to make decisions about what they're going to do in the field they behave like field sales people in my mind but they're really right. they do something Makes sense. slightly different and uh it's surprising to me how many applications there are to the problem that we solve and, and yet you know people are still able to find us that's something we're working on from a marketing perspective right now like who who are all you people where where, where do we find you who else I think that's always a challenge just identifying, you know, who is that, especially when you get outliers and and then you get a few outliers and you're like, well, is this, is this a market or is this truly an outlier? Yeah. And and they're, you know, this particular company is doing things in this particular way. And, and you do sort of creep into other software spaces, right? Like there is field service software, which is different than field sales software because service people work differently than salespeople. Salespeople don't have inventory problems and parts problems and, you know, they don't have an amount of time that they need right. to do a job, this job versus that job in the field. Like they're, and they're not swappable, swappable. You can't just like have this plumber. You can, you can have this plumber fix a sink or any of these 10 plumbers. Depends who's closest. That's field services. Field sales is like, well, this this account belongs right. to the salesperson, so they're the person that has to go visit them. There's a relationship. Absolutely, yeah. So there's there's differences in these yeah. different situations. And and uh, sometimes you'll find people in this adjacent industry that end up behaving like the people that you originally solved the problem for. And, and then you got to figure out, well, is this worth me going after this group of people? And 
And should I prosecute it? What else has been surprising? I just launched a new product this year. I've been surprised how easy that is when you already have a whole team that can manage each piece of it. You know, and I think five million is a little early to be launching new products, but this one was we were particularly well suited for because it's a, it's a training product for salespeople. So it's a kind of like masterclass video, the masterclass video platform, but it's all the videos are, are sales training videos. Okay. So it's called Badger Sales University. That's very adjacent to our original pro- product because you know. Same yes. users, I guess more people than just field salespeople can use it. Any kind of salesperson, retail, inside, whatever could use it. But all of our existing customers can upsell to it. Because of my hobbies, I, I think I have a sales podcast called Outside Sales Talk, and I bring on sales experts and interview them on different areas of sales. That kind of marketing slash hobby that I do, I know you know 200 field sales experts. It was easy for me to gather their videos and create a platform with it um, because I already know them. That was an easy product for us to get going because, you know, it was a natural extension really. But I, I do think in general, 5 million is a little early to be doing that. But I guess I was surprised at how well it worked and how easy that was for us to, to kind of get going. And there's a lot of growth in it. We've got a lot to do still, obviously, but we were able to spin it right up. That's good, especially because it, it is so adjacent to what you do. It's not something that's completely outside of that. You've got you know, existing customers that that need that yeah. as well. So it just makes like a well, and good that's transition. A to think about new new products and services you're creating. It's like if you look at your existing customer base and you know you've got seven thousand customers or something, and you're like, well, yeah, I mean, these guys all kind of need this. So if I'm able to sell it to fifteen percent of them, then this whole project just pays for itself, and then I could. I'll be selling it going forward. So, but it was it cost me nothing, and and I could also right. sell it to all these people, which is fantastic. So, it allowed, that that initial cross sell is a great rubric to kind of hold up. Like, you know, should I should I do this or not? It's like, well, how long? If I know that a bunch of the the people that I'm already doing business with are just going to upsell into this, then um, then that makes it make a lot of sense. And you know, it's and it's cheap, it's much easier right? decision. Like Twenty nine bucks a month for. You know, all you can eat sales training videos. It's it's attractive to a lot of a lot of our customers. We can just show it to them and be like, hey, yeah, do a, try it out for free for a month, kick the tires if if you enjoy it. You know, press the if you enjoy it, we take it away from you at the end of the month. Press the button to start paying for it. <laughs> so you know, it's, it, it uh, that made a lot of sense. So I guess that was surprising. Yeah, it's good. A little product led growth there. So with your experience in sales, what are some sales myths or where do companies miss it when it comes to sales? This is one of my, one of my favorite topics. Sales. <laughs> uh, I'd, say, I'd say, are there any sales myths or do we have it all correct all the time? No, no, we are, we are wrong about a lot of things. I think, I think one, one good one is uh, the coaching and development of salespeople is something that gets done at the annual training as opposed to all the time. I think that's a, a, a nice one. Even if your VP of sales wouldn't say that, that's actually how they, they behave. But actually, I think you should be up-leveling up and coaching your team at all times, uh, You know, especially in, in times of a difficult economy like, like we have right now, right? I think uh, a sales right. manager should be spending about half their time coaching their team. This isn't just like, you know, classroom learning, but this, this includes pre-call strategizing, post-call debriefing, Doing joint calls, ride-alongs, um, can be you know coaching on a specific opportunity. Anything that makes your reps better counts towards that fifty percent 
uh, rule of thumb. I think you want to be coaching things like negotiation and, and you know, what, what needs to be coached, of course, depends on the team and depends on the industry. There's how do you defend your margins? That's some you know, negotiation type training. That's always an important thing to think everybody can freshen up on. Uh, building pipeline is a great thing to think about coaching people, especially in a tough economy. You know, we often need to relearn to prospect and rethink who we're selling to in a bad economy. There are a bunch of others like, you know, field sales is, is going away is one of my favorites because I'm in, I'm in field sales. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I make a product for field sales people, but uh, that's, that's a good myth. I hear a lot like people are like, Oh, do people even do that anymore? And I'm like, yeah, we, I, we have, you know, 7,500 companies doing <laughs> that, that use our product. It certainly <laughs> is uh, not dying or going away, especially during COVID. That was, you know, I, I swear half the people I talked to that were friends of mine were like, oh, I was worried about you. I totally thought you'd be out of business. And I'm like, no, no, we're, we're still here. All, <laughs> not that COVID didn't hurt, but, but I mean, post-COVID, I mean, face, face-to-face right. meetings are, are really important to lots of different types of sales. You know, they, they shorten sales cycles, they need yes. relationships. And I think they're always going to be important. That's a good myth, you know, that that's going away. People are like, oh, because of Zoom. And I'm like, well, we've always had the phone. We've always been able to talk to people in that type of way. Right. Seeing your right. little face in a square on my screen doesn't change that much about the interaction. It's a phone or an internet interaction is always clunky and awkward compared to a, an in-person meeting where you can really connect and really understand your customers' problems better, I think, in person. And I don't know why that is. I guess people thrive off social interaction um, and you kind of tap into something that makes us human when you're with someone that you don't get over the phone from a relationship perspective. Yeah, without a doubt. Yeah, there's, there's a bunch of so how do you think sales has changed and evolved, say, over the last you know, four or five years? And how do you think it's continuing to change going forward? You know, one of the biggest changes in, in, in the industry, are, are they're technolo- technologically driven. A lot of stuff, it's surprising what hasn't changed, um, even with all the technology that we have. Like if you read sales coaching books from 1917 (laughs) it's all still you know understand your customer's problem listen to them map your solution to it after you really understand them build a relationship you know be useful be helpful you know i think i think a lot of stuff has has not changed but the things that really probably have changed the most are the ways we reach people you know email messaging and you know, all, all the technology that we use today that we didn't used to have, th- that's driving the biggest changes. You know, how can we communicate with people? I think the internet changes a lot of things. People do a lot of research before they engage with a, with a prospect or customer. I think all the review sites really change the way people buy. They can hear from 200 of the people who have already tried your product at the touch of a button, so your product better be good because if it sucks... People are going to talk about on the internet how it sucks. <laughs> so, in the the, the yeah. research people are able to <laughs> it's do true. Um, today versus you know when I started my career uh, is is really really huge. I think it's much it's a it's a more transparent world. Yeah, that, those are the key changes I think that I see. So, where can people find out more about you and about Badger Maps online? You know, if you just go to our website, badgermapping.com, you can Google us. That's probably the best place to learn about the product if you have a field sales team. If you're interested in learning more about sales, my podcast is a great free resource. It's specifically geared towards field salespeople um, for obvious reasons, but 
So I, I kind of bring on these sales experts and have them teach what they teach from, from the perspective of understanding that the listeners are field salespeople and managers of field sales teams. That's called outside sales talk. Badger Sales University is the, the sales training product. That's You can just Google that um, if you have a sales team that you want. You know, we, have the, we have a free trial. I think Steve 80, all, all, all uppercase Steve and then 80, same word, um, is a is a 80% off code for that. If like first month's free and then 80% off the second month. Reaching me personally, LinkedIn's probably the best way. I and mean, my LinkedIn's kind of a nightmare for me right now. So much reaching out going on on that today. But uh, that's probably still the best place to, to sure. get a hold of me is, is just do the search for Steve Benson, Badger Maps, I'll pop right up. But that's probably the best place to find, to, to actually get a hold of me personally. And we'll make sure and link all of those, especially the podcast and uh, Badger University in the show notes. And uh, we'll make sure I have that, the code in there as well. Where did the name come from? Where, where did Badger so Maps? Why Badger? The, the biggest reason was that I, I went to the University of Wisconsin. And so I am a Badger. Uh, there you go. So, but I, I wanted to pick an animal or some other like kind of memorable noun to, to name the company. I think nouns are great for names. I don't like it when... People use adjectives and you can really picture now one. I don't think Badger was the, de- the best name in the world because a lot of people don't know what a Badger is. I mean, I, I, coming growing up in the Midwest, I feel like, you know, I, <laughs> I, I thought this was like an obvious, you know, one of the biggest North, North American mammals. Right. I, I you would think, you know, right. But you, you go to like California and people are like, what's a badger? Like, my wife thought that a badger was, what did she think it was? A beaver. She thought badgers were beaver. She's like, for, for I mean, we were together for at least two years before she figured that one out. She's like, oh, well, they like make houses in the water. And I'm like, no, they don't. <laughs> exactly the same, <laughs> only completely different. Yeah, you know, apparently people that aren't from the Midwest don't know what a badger or a wolverine or a pine marten are, but they're important North American animals and everyone should get to know them. They're very cool. The honey Love badger, it. the honey badger <laughs> was enjoying some really good press at the time in 2011 when I was thinking yes. about company names. So that that helped a lot because everyone kind of really had a positive association with really funny honey badger video that was was one of the most viral videos of 2011, I think. Um, we've all yes. seen at this point, I would hope, but uh, hysterical. He's like, you know, this nasty ass little badger, and he's running around killing things. And it's, it's <laughs> a great, great video. So I was looking for a noun. I was, I basically wanted to name the company some animal, and I had, I had a personal affiliation with badger. And then, uh, although I, I, I would recommend trying to rec- right now that we've gone international, you, you want to pick a name that internationalizes well, which is tricky because you, you got to think about Asia, you got to think about Europe, and. Badger does not internationalize well. Even in Western languages, the DG's like, huh? <laughs> and and no one knows what it is. So because you know, it, it, except in like England and Scotland and Australia, they know exactly what a badger is, which is strange. And nobody knows what a badger is like the English. They love badgers over there. Can't explain why, but that's uh, you know, that's what it is. That's good. We at least you get to educate them as to, to what it is. And you, you own that in that market if they don't even know That's what right. it is. That's right. Well, it'd be memorable if they did know what it was. If I could do it all again, I might have I might have picked a fox or a skunk or something that kind of everybody understands what it is. Like, yeah, <laughs> skunk like maps. Squirrel. But squirrels are tricky. They don't like you, you talk, talk about squirrels to Australians. And they're like, oh, what? They don't have squirrels in Australia. So you, you, you got a koala. Yeah. I mean, I feel like there's these key animals that everybody knows what it is. Pandas. So, you know, 
if you're picking, picking now and that everybody knows, don't, don't, don't do what I did. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. I like Badger Maps. I think that's, that's good. Appreciate it. Steve, really enjoyed having you on the show. Yeah, Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Uh, and uh, let me know if I can be helpful. Thanks again, Steve, for coming on the show and sharing your journey and insights. You can learn more about Steve and Badger Maps at badgermapping.com. As always, all links, highlights, resources, full show notes are available at sasfuel.com, including a link to Steve's Badger Sales University. You should definitely go check that out. Please subscribe, follow us, or leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. You can do all of that at sasfuel.com. And everyone who subscribes this week gets a set of, uh, we'll say some bent ski poles. How about that? It's, uh, it's about the best I could do with my uh, ski career. Well, join us next time on our SaaS Fuel Expert Series for a conversation with John Dougherty, serial entrepreneur and founder of Credo and Editor Ninja. going to be a great conversation. Credo has been an amazing idea to help with the question of how do I find a good marketing agency? fills a really important need. It's easy to use and helps solve many issues in finding the right marketing agency to work with. And our founder next week is Osa Asarenko. He is a three-time founder and former co-founder of Fifth Star Funds VC. He's applying lessons from the tech and finance world to create demonstrable impact on restaurant operations and sustainability. Curious to learn more? It is a great episode, wonderful conversation. So come back next week, John on Thursday and Osa on next Tuesday. And until then, enjoy the journey. Thanks for listening to SAS Fuel. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned are available at sasfuel.com. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com slash sassfuel. We'll be sure to read these out on future episodes.